0: Amen. All right, let's dive in. You've got a Bible. If you do, open it to Ephesians 5. You have a worship folder. If you do, take it out. Take out your notes so we can dive in. If you're joining us today for the first time, that you're joining us in a series called This is a Football. These are the uh, really kind of become immortal words of Vince Lombardi, coach of the Packers, after they had lost what was then now called the Super Bowl, looking into the next season. And I just had one of our members share with me a great quote from college football yesterday. Who says that college football is not applicable, right? Who says that college football isn't a great thing to watch on Saturday to come ready for illustrations on Sunday? man, I feel so vindicated all of a sudden. But he had this great quote and he said this. He says that when the pressure of, of, of a challenge in a game comes on, fundamentals are the first thing to go out the window. You forget that block. You don't tackle down feel like you ought to. You fumble the ball. All those are the things that begin to go. That's why a focus on the fundamentals is so important. And so in our new season together, that's been our desire is to say, God, we want to get on the same page with you for your church, because that's exactly what Trinity Church is. And we want to live out your objectives in our lives and in our community. So as we think about that, what we found is in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we understood and discovered who God says we are. Now that we're in Christ, adopted into his family, what does it mean to be his family? adopted son or daughter, his heir. And in the second half of Ephesians, what we're learning is the outworking of that. What does that actually look like? How do we live according to, consistent with, whose we are? We found at the very beginning of chapter four a very, very helpful process of disengaging from old habits, old sinful behaviors, being made new in our minds and now engaging in the new. And we said that with the power of the Holy Spirit connected to that process, real change can happen. And we've looked at a series of examples since then, in chapters four and five, since we kind of uncovered that initial process, and today we kind of follow suit. So let's look in your notes. We begin today. Number one, strategically take advantage of opportunities around you. Strategically take advantage of opportunities around you. Why do I say that? Chapter 5, verse 15. One of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, understand what the Lord's will is. Even though I um, forgot a part. Do not be foolish and understand what the Lord's will is. The first part of our passage today refers to being strategic and being purposeful with your time, making the most of every opportunity. In the big picture reality, it's the idea of living a strategic life, living a life of meaning and on purpose. And here's what we find. That kind of life requires intentionality. That kind of life requires preparation. That kind of life requires wisdom. So you can indeed make the most of every opportunity. In your notes, you don't stumble into strategy. It requires careful wisdom and attention. You don't stumble into a strategic life. You actually plan and prepare and pray for it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. What was really cool in that phrase that you read I mean, it was verse 16, making the most of every opportunity. I love doing a little bit of study on that word this week. And here's kind of the idea. It has built into it the word agora and this idea of the marketplace. That, that's a built-in aspect of this word. And, and here's kind of the idea. Making the most of every opportunity is basically when there's a fire sale, you're showing up. Right? You're familiar with the term fire sale? It's the idea that maybe a business is going upside down or somebody's just liquidating all of their assets. And so the idea that everything is on sale, dirt cheap. Imagine it this way. This is a saffron, okay, a, a flower. And so if many of you are familiar, you've heard the name before. I did a study uh, on just studies, an unfair word. I Googled... Uh, <laughs> I'm at least honest, right? I'm at least honest. And I Googled, what are the most expensive materials on the planet? Well, the 18th, as at the time of this article, the 18th most expensive material by which to, to make other products is saffron. Saffron costs $5,000 a pound. Back, whenever this article, I think mean, it was 2014. Now you do the math, saffron, you look at this little flower and you're like, well, it takes a lot of saffrons to make a a pound of it. That's a lot of stuff. So $5,000 for a pound. Let's say that your job is to be someone who locates and purchases large quantities of saffron so you can take it back to a manufacturer. Saffron's used, by the way, in a lot of organic um, remedies to help our health. So that's your job. You're to go out and find the raw material of saffron, about $5,000 a pound, and you bring it back. Now, if you're to doing your job, you have made a lot of connections with vendors. You're paying attention to uh, different places where you know to get it. You're making connections with maybe people who grow saffron. You are being strategic. You are being thoughtful. You're being wise. Why? Because it's your job. And so first century Ephesus, remember we said today when you visit Ephesus, you have to look about a mile away to see the ocean, but in the first century, until that all got silted out, the harbor came right up to the the amphitheater. And so Ephesus was a city definitely of trade, and as people would bring in their products, they would bring them to the Agora. they bring them to the marketplace, and taking making the most of every opportunity is when the saffron was brought off the boat and brought into the marketplace. What is normally five thousand dollars a pound was on sale for fifty. Fifty dollars a pound. Last service I said that was one tenth. I'm not the pastor of math, that's one one hundredth of the price. Okay? <laughs> So one one hundredth of the price, that's called a fire sale. And because you have been keeping your ear to the ground, because you had heard even from other merchants that the stuff you're out to purchase is coming in dirt cheap, you're the first one in line. You are making the most of every opportunity. That's what that word means. So Paul says that we are to live in a way that makes the most of every opportunity. That is strategic, that is wise, that is thoughtful, that is planned. And in doing so, we can take advantage. Because here's the deal. Your job is most likely not a buyer of saffron. Your job, your calling, is that of being an ambassador of Jesus. That's your calling. So therefore, in the same aspect then of being on your, on your game, looking for when those fire sales arrive, you are on your game, paying attention to the people in your world as you represent him to them. Look at some of the ways Paul says to do this. He says that you are to be wise in how you live. The phrase there is the idea of living circumspect. Now, I never use that word, so I don't even know what that means, but it's the idea of actually walking through like an area that's like got a lot of landmines. You're looking everywhere around you like circular. You're circular watching where you walk. It's a word of precision, You are living in a way that is calculated, that is thoughtful, that is precise. You are strategic because you live among the ruins, among the misery of what evil has done in people's lives. That phrase, because the days are evil. You hear that, you hear 2016 and you go, man, does that describe our day. Can I tell you, first century Ephesus Christians, even worse than what you can imagine we face today. So here's the interesting thing. That word, because the days are evil, it's not actually referring to the idea of just the moral evilness. Here's what it's referring to. The consequences of moral evilness. The consequences and the misery associated when people simply live in an evil way. The people in your relational world, if you're ever struggling to find points of connection... Ever struggling to find out how do I relate to them? How do I understand where they're coming from? I will tell you that the word, the concept that links somehow all of us together, it seems today, is pain. Pain connects us. Pain is a talking point because you can assume that the person you're sharing with, you're demonstrating Christ to, you're being an ambassador in front of, you can assume they're going through some degree of pain. And that pain sometimes is coming from the outside, meaning it's not anything they did that they somehow are now deserving of. But often the pain that we experience in our lives, especially the people in our relational world who don't yet know Christ, it's because of the way that they're living apart from him. What I call self-inflicted pain. I've made a series of choices that now I'm living in the consequences of those and it's a weight upon my life. Because the days are evil, because people are living in the misery of what the reality of evil fleshes out like in our lives. And lastly, understand that God's preferred will. Understand that his designated purpose for your life is to represent his love and his life to your world. Here's what I love. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 actually has the very same phrase, the very same word. Take a look at it. Paul, by the way, wrote this book, this letter to the Colossians in a similar vein, a similar time. Here's what he says, almost word for word what we're reading. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That's an interesting term simply related to those not yet in the family of God. Make the most of every opportunity. That's almost verbatim, but now watch this. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love that this verse addresses how we speak. That's exactly what the application is to the church at Colossae, is is in this case, not as though how you live doesn't matter, but in the way that you talk, it matters that that's a part of living wisely, living intentionally. And here's what's really cool. I I had read this verse numerous times, but this week it caught me in a new way. I always thought that this verse actually told you what to say. But as I reread it this week, I realized, no, it, it actually doesn't say what to say, it just says how to say it. Look at the phrase again. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Let there be a sense of graciousness and even winsomeness. It tastes good when you talk to people that you may know not what to answer, but how. As you are sharing with people, as you're talking about your faith, as you're talking about the truth, you can do it in a way that's winsome. You can do it in a way that's attractive. You can do it in a way that actually brings grace rather than judgment. The other thing that's fascinating is that this verse begs the question that somebody's asking. Remember that you might know how to answer everyone. You know, I grew up in a youth group in a church and about the, the last half of the 1980s was my time in high school And that was kind of when a surge of new apologetics was beginning to rise in a good way. A lot of great how-to, and and I I still struggle with the term how to defend your faith because I'm not sure I see that in scripture. But what I liked was the idea that we were learning a lot. But one of the things that we never really talked much about, we talked a lot about how to give answers, but we'd often go to people who weren't asking questions. (laughs) Let me tell you stuff you need to know. Okay, but I don't care. This verse says, so that you might know how to answer inferring because they're asking. Guess what? When we rub lives, when we get close to people and begin to pay attention to who God has placed into our world and begin to get intentional, questions will arise. How is it that you do your marriage that way because we're just more like roommates? How do you raise your kids that way because I'm just herding cats? How do you have hope in the midst of all the crazy in our world because I'm a mess? People pay attention to the way you live and how you talk, and it will generate questions. Remember this picture that I showed you when I was candidating? It's, I told you it's one near and dear to my heart, and you'll probably see it a bunch more times. Get used to it, right? It's in my office if you ever want to come to see the actual, okay? But, but remember what we talked about. Do this. We, you can even do this if this helps, okay? Do this, right? See? Zone in on just the people on the dock, right? Just zone in on them. Zone, zone in with the people on the dock and look at them and kind of realize what are they doing, and if you notice again, they're out to dinner and they're doing art. You'll notice how dated the picture is by the size of the boom box on that guy's shoulder. Sorry, students down here, those are in museums now, okay? But, um, but anyways, these are things, they're all doing things. And if you look at the picture, people on the dock aren't doing anything bad. They're doing what I would call generally morally neutral things. And as we looked at Ephesians, guess what they're killing it at? They're killing it at disengaging from sinful behavior. Killing it. By the way, that means they're doing good, okay? Um, they're doing a great job of this. But what would have we learned through the book of Ephesians? God is not interested only in what we're pulling out of. God has said, I want you to engage. Guess what's not happening in the picture by and large they don't care and they're not paying attention to go on living as though everything's fine in the midst of the storm and bodies are in the water is a gross negligence and you would look at that picture just even not within us through spiritual lenses and you would say that is an atrocity that people don't care Be very careful, though, because you're probably looking in the mirror, not out the window. And this always grips my heart and should not infer and incur a bunch of guilt. Instead, motivates me to be, I want to be a person who's not just going through life, not living strategically, not engaging and making the most of every opportunity. Instead, I want to be the guy out in the boat. I want to be the guy reaching down his hand. I want to be the guy throwing out the life ring. That's... That's what God has called us to. In your notes, you have that phrase, the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents. And that, that, that parable came to mind when I was looking at this passage and thinking through the idea. Remember how the story goes. Jesus talks about, gives the illustration of a, a man of wealth who entrusts three servants with varying degrees of wealth before he leaves. Gives them this idea, invest, make money, Let there be productiveness with what you do. The interesting thing is what I love about it is that each one of them has varying degrees. They're not all given. One is given five amounts of wealth, one three and one one. And so as the master comes back and he asks these servants, how did it go? What did you do with what I gave you? The one who had five said, I've used it, I've invested it well, and here it is. I've got five but added five more. What does the master say? Man these are words that I want you and me to literally focus our whole life around that we would hear our master say well done. Well done good and faithful servant. Here's what I love about the story then he gives to another 3 lesser than the 5. I'm good at that part of math. I get that part. So he gives him 3 and then he says what was your return and he says master here's your 3 plus 3 more. And in the very same exact language, he says to this servant, well done. Good and faithful servant. He's not junior. He's not less than, even though he was given less than, he's as equally as faithful as the other. I love that. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same resources. God just simply calls us to be productive with what we've got. To the last one, and what of you? And he says, master, Ephesians, I've disengaged. I didn't take your money and go spend it in a, in a wild way. I didn't go lose it. Here it is. And we would say that that servant was doing all the right things related to disengaging from sinful behavior he could have used his master's money for, but the master never gave him something to sit on, was not primarily interested in what he wasn't going to do with it, but expected him to do with it. And when he has only to return what he actually had initially, how does the master refer to him? You wicked, lazy servant. Disengaging is important. Engaging is important. We want to walk that balance and live that life that pleases God. Now you're here today and you go, Todd, you, you have just overwhelmed me. Thank you. On the one hand, there may be an overwhelmedness related to just the fact of of really not thinking this way, living this way, living with purpose. For others of us, you're saying, but Todd, the stuff you're talking about requires a lot of time. Have you seen my life, right? All the plates that I have spinning. Now you just threw this platter into the mix, and now how am I going to spin that one too? I get it. I get that that is overwhelming. Let me pull back, though. Anytime we're confronted with God's truth and we see that our lives are not living in sync with it, we have really great options. Option one is to say, God, I confess that I have not been living a life on purpose I really recognize that's what you have for me and I I want to change. That's called confession and repentance and it's available to you today. And for the plate spinning part, like where in the world, how do I get off this crazy train? How do I make this? Can I begin with this? Here's the simple thing I want to put out to you is you make evaluative decisions based on your time. You have one life. You have 24 hours in a day, just like I do, and everyone else in this auditorium. Do not lose the plot. Don't forget while you're here. And if today's a day to begin to let God kind of show you, scrape off some edges that you've just kind of gone with the flow, you've gotten on the train and just let it go, then I would say, not in a way of guilt, but in a way of purpose, because here's what I want you to hear more than anything. When I got confronted with this reality of really living as an ambassador of Jesus, do you know that it, when I got confronted with it and began to actually play it out, it had nothing to do with me being a pastor. I'd been in ministry for 10 years. I had a seminary degree, went to Bible college. But when I grabbed this idea and it finally took root in me, it had nothing to do with the fact that I was a pastor that made me so much more qualified. It's just the fact that I took seriously being an ambassador. And of all the great things that God's allowed me to be a part of in ministry, it is seeing Josh come to Jesus that captures my heart like nothing else. I want you to know that. I want you to experience God using you because he wants to. You might think you're too broken. You might think that you have nothing to offer. You're wrong. Just yesterday, an event I was at, I was reminded, God put this amazing treasure of the gospel in jars of clay people like us who have nothing great to offer God, but he wants to use your life. And the sense of significance, the sense of meaning, the sense of worth that you derive when you live according to God's design, it is off the chart. I want you to get to experience what it means to hear God say well done by living a life of purpose. Number one in your notes. Number two, we dive in a little further. You're responsible for what or who controls you. You're responsible for what or who controls you. What do I mean by that? Chapter five, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, all right? Two things are being contrasted here. One is that of wine. One is that of the Holy Spirit. And and what we're talking about is this. What what are they about? Well, what they both have in common is that they are elements that can control you. They can take you as a sense. they, They take over parts of your life when you let them. That's the interesting thing that they also have in common. Neither of them can force their will upon you. You are a partaker. You somehow are part of the process. But they both want to have degrees of control over your life. The reality is, is that neither of them take it from you. You willingly hand it over. Be sure, by the way, what we're talking about today is not just wine as it is. We're talking about drunkenness. That's when that control really happens. And for our time today, I don't have much to say on the subject except for this. I grew up in a church youth group, much like you guys down here. And what we would do is we would constantly try to get in debates, not me so much, but my friends, because I was just so great. But um, (laughs) they would constantly try to get in debates with our youth pastor about how drinking is not a sin. It's all, this whole thing would go on. And it was great. My youth pastor was always pretty sharp and this is what he'd say. "Uh, It's a sin for you. I say, why? He's like, you're not 21. Easy peasy, right? As you process this idea, we're not talking about simple alcohol. We're talking about drunkenness because drunkenness takes, you, takes control of you. In the same way, we're not talking about a little bit of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about giving up control, surrendering your life to his control. So this is what we're talking about. And here's the thing. if you, If you're here today and you would say, honestly, You're struggling with some sort of substance that really does get control of your life. Here's two things just about it. Number one, the Bible says it leads to debauchery. Now that's not a word I use every day. I don't know about you. Oh, the debauchery, you know. I just don't, and this is like the NIV, a real basic translation of the Bible in English, but we don't ever use that word. But here's what I did. I did a little bit of word study on the actual English word. And here, check this. Debauchery comes from an old English word that literally means seduction from virtue or duty. I thought that was powerful. Drunkenness leads to a seduction, a distraction from what you're called to, to your purpose. That's pretty powerful. The other thing is this, if you're here today and a substance is having control of your life, here's really what God is saying. There's no place for that in the new family culture. That was a part of who you were. That's a part of how an unbelieving world lives. But for you, it's ill-fitting in God's family. The verb that we're looking at, be filled, is actually the same one we've already seen. Ephesians 3, when Paul was praying for the Ephesian church, he used this word. He said, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled. And remember what we talked about, we said that word, like how do you break that down? you see it this way, to be filled means that you're creating space to allow there to be less of anything but Jesus. In this case, less of anything. So meaning that there, I'm creating space in my life that there's really no room for anything other than the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be filled. I think the best way to actually preach this, this passage is just to look at the verb. You've heard this phrase, it's kind of a buzz phrase in our Christian culture called spirit-filled, right? And there's even churches, we're the spirit-filled church. And I always, when I see that, I kind of go, I guess mine isn't, you know, because yours is, so that's great. But but here's what that verb, just literally, and I, I never usually just break down, like the verb itself, I told you what it means, but now let's just look at the tense, the tense of the verb. First off, it's an imperative verb, which means it's a command, it's a directive, it's something expected. This is something you ought to do. Secondly, the verb is plural. So when Paul was writing the Ephesian church, he wasn't saying, well, for some of you or a couple of you, he's saying to the church, all of you ought. The verb is passive, passive. And what that means is, is that it's something you invite and allow the spirit of God to do. But at the end of the day, it's a work of God in your life. There's a partnership. You're creating space, allowing him to fill it up. And lastly, it's present. It's literally translated, be being filled by the Spirit of God. It's an ongoing daily reality. So look up on the screen. This is a way to maybe, this is Todd's expanded translation. God's command to be filled with the Spirit is this. Let us, an imperative verb, plural, invite and create space. It's a passive verb. God is the one of action. Create space for God's Spirit to daily, the consistent ongoing nature of it, have increasingly more control of our lives. That's what God is saying he wants for you as his child. Let my spirit have more and more control over you. And finally, number three in your notes, when you're controlled by God's spirit, you respond accordingly. When you're controlled by God's spirit, you you respond accordingly. Verses 19 and 20, speaking... To one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's an imperative verb, be being filled with the Spirit of God. And then here's the outlay. Here's what it looks like when we allow God's rightful presence in our lives. Number one, in your notes, we speak in song. Now, this word caught me weird. I don't know about you, but I usually sing songs. Okay, so some of you must speak them. It's like totally like, Todd, what's the big deal about that? That's fine. I usually sing them. So I was like, speaking in song, what does that even mean? And it really kind of caught me a little bit. I didn't know what to do with it. Well, I found a parallel passage. Again, back to the book of Colossians, it says this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, watch, as you teach and admonish one another. So those are words again of of usually of speaking and it's words of, of actually this direction, right? It's horizontal. Teach one another what? With all wisdom through what? Through songs, through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So twice Paul is saying that the lyrics, the, the, the content of songs, somehow, and I haven't really thought this much out before, but I thought this is powerful. When we get together as a community and we engage in musical worship, in songs of worship, one of the realities is happening is this. You are actually teaching, providing direction to those sitting right around you. I don't know if you ever thought about this dimension of music before, but there is a a horizontal component to worship music because here's what we're doing as we gather to, to kind of recite and sing words of truth about the character of God in community. We're saying this is who God is and that you listen to each other. And remember that when we're doing what we're doing up here, a worship band is here to lead you because you're the choir You're the ones who are engaged in this. And so when it comes to worship music, there is a very much an intentional horizontal reality of it. Look at the next part, not just speaking, but also singing, singing and making music. This is the vertical aspect, doing this as unto the Lord. So horizontally, we're encouraging one another, instructing one another vertically. We instruct God of nothing. We just affirm, God, you are this, God, you do that. And, and we'll get to it finished, by the way, today. That's why we kind of moved our music time to the back of the service so we could actually do what we're talking about in our passage. So I'm going to be quiet in just a second. Next, giving thanks. Giving thanks. Here's the thing. We enter into this next month and we definitely should rightfully rally around the Thanksgiving table and, and being thoughtful of all the things. God, thank you. But I want you to hear again from the text today that Thanksgiving isn't reserved for one month out of the year. Not reserved for one week out of the year, one day out of the year. This is the DNA. This is the nature of the people of God that we are a grateful, thankful people giving God acknowledgement that everything comes from him. I love that verse from James chapter one. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father of heavenly lights. Finally, this is interesting. The last of, there's four participles that come out of that imperative verb. Lastly, submitting, submitting. Let me, it's not in your notes, but you, if you have your Bible open, you'll see verse 21. The NIV doesn't get it right because it makes it an imperative, but it's a participle. It should read submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's where we're going. This phrase is powerful, and here's the thing I really want you to grab. Number one, that this word submitting is going to set up most of the rest of the book of Ephesians. Our next three messages will all relate back to this participle. But here's the bigger idea I want you to catch today. How you submit to those in leadership over you is an outpouring or a reflection of how much the Spirit of God controls you. Remember the imperative verb, be being filled. And one of the ways, and we'd like to look at the ones that look kind of benign. Be being filled by the way that you speak in song. Be being filled in the way you sing. Be being filled in the way that you give gratitude and thanks to God. And oh, by the way, be being filled as you submit to others in authority. I was really good at three out of four. That last one, It's gonna be good. It's gonna set up where we go. Here's our game plan for the week. Be strategic and allow God's spirit to control more of you. This is what we wanna be about this week. Be strategic, make the most of every opportunity and allow the spirit of God more space in your life than you did last week. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We are so grateful for your word. So grateful for its truth And its clarity and direction in our lives. And I just want to thank you, God, for my brothers and sisters here this morning that as we're hearing things that are both encouraging and confronting, God, let it all be wrapped around the idea of your great love for us, how richly you care for us. If you're here today, and I think of even that picture, that who cares picture, and you would say, Todd, if I look at that picture rightly, I'm the one in the water. I'm the one who doesn't have this assuredness of being on the rock. And even though the people on the rock by large are not paying attention, I have to be honest with myself, I'm still in the water. I need to make the most of that opportunity, the opportunity to respond to the gospel. And if you're here today and you have not yet responded to Jesus's invitation of love and forgiveness and hope, I wanna encourage you today, you can by admitting that you need a savior, admitting that you are in the water face down, by be believing, believing that Jesus is the only savior available and he has the power to reach down and pull you out and see his choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I wanna be made new. I wanna live your life. You can make that decision today and I pray that you would. I pray that you would make the most of this opportunity staring you in the face. Father, we love you. Thank you for your rich love and purpose for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.